Beloved Bhagwan, without the mind, there's no Buddha, means that the Buddha comes from the mind. Whoever wants to see a Buddha sees the mind before he sees the Buddha. Once you've seen the Buddha, you forget about the mind. If you don't forget about the mind, the mind will confuse you. Mortality and Buddhahood are like water and ice. To be afflicted by the three poisons is mortality. To be purified by the three releases is Buddhahood. That which freezes into ice in winter melts into water in summer. Eliminate ice and there's no more water. Get rid of mortality and there's no more Buddhahood. Clearly, the nature of ice is the nature of water. Mortals liberate Buddhas and Buddhas liberate mortals. This is what's meant by impartiality. Mortals liberate Buddhas because affliction creates awareness and Buddhas liberate mortals because awareness negates affliction. There can't help but be affliction and there can't help but be awareness. If not for affliction, there would be nothing to create awareness. And if not for awareness, there would be nothing to negate affliction. When you're deluded, Buddhas liberate mortals. When you're aware, mortals liberate Buddhas. Buddhas don't become Buddhas on their own. They're liberated by mortals. Buddhas regard delusion as their father and greed as their mother. Delusion and greed are different names for mortality. When you're deluded, you're on this shore. When you're aware, you're on the other shore. But once you know your mind is empty and you see no appearances, you're beyond delusion and awareness. And once you're beyond delusion and awareness, the other shore doesn't exist. The Tathagata isn't on this shore or the other shore and he isn't in midstream. Our hearts are in midstream 
and mortals are on this shore. On the other shore is Buddhahood. Bodhidharma has insights which are unparalleled. There have been many disciples of Gautam Buddha who have attained to enlightenment. But nobody has shown so great insightfulness. Either they have remained silent or they have spoken, but neither their silence or their speaking has reached to the heights and to the depths of consciousness. Perhaps the reason is that Bodhidharma is unafraid of what he is saying. He knows no fear. He has no concern what people will think about his statements. He does not take in account anybody else when he is speaking. It is almost as if he is speaking to himself. For nine years he was sitting before a wall. And when people will come, they will have to sit behind him. They could ask questions, but Bodhidharma will answer only to the wall. He was not at all concerned who is asking the question. 
he was more concerned with his own insides just the last night i have received the last book of j krishna murti in which he is not speaking to anybody he is speaking just to himself they are recorded but there was no ideas and perhaps in this book he comes closer to truth than any other of his books the ideas is a limitation it has been been my experience too if i am speaking to my own people then there is no limitation then i don't feel that i have to say something or not to say something then i simply say as if i am speaking to myself when i am speaking to people who don't know me who don't understand me moreover they misunderstand me there is a great limitation then i am not at freedom to speak their very faces their eyes their gestures prevent me to say something that may hurt them just few days before seventy people from the times of india group of papers had come to have an exclusive interview with him and their owners were also present sumer jain nandita jain and their mother indu jain they were also present but the strangest thing that i immediately felt as i entered 
the auditorium so ugly, so inhuman, and so uncultured that when I was giving my greetings with folded hands to everybody, those seventy people, including Hindu Jain, could not even respond. That is, in India, a simple thing. Even a stranger on the street holds his hand. It need not be known to you who he is, but you respond. Because a folded hand greeting has a spiritual meaning. Taking the hands has no spiritual meaning. Shaking the hands has a very mundane meaning. You have to shake with your right hand. It was a device created by the West to know that in your right hand you are not keeping any weapon. It was not a greeting, it was a search. It was being alert that the man is not an enemy, that he cannot do any harm because his right hand is empty. The reason of shaking hands and its psychology is totally different, in a way very mean, political. But greeting somebody with folded hands has a spiritual meaning. First, that I bow down to your godliness. Whether you are a stranger, friend or enemy, it does not matter. Still you are a temple of God, of a living God. Those folded hands are showing the respect for the living God. These things are immaterial. You are a friend, are a stranger, are an enemy. And secondly, the folded hands show 
that I am not half-hearted in my greeting. I am total. My both hands, my left hemisphere, my right hemisphere, both are greeting you together. I am greeting you as one organic unity. But I was surprised that the Times of India press people who are well educated, who own the biggest newspapers, magazines, weeklies, fortnightlies, they are all journalists. But they could not respond to me. They said they're like stone statues. Even Indujan, the only man who responded to me was Sumerjan, who is now in charge of the Times of India publication and his sister, Nandita Jain, but she could not come to the full greeting. She was hesitating. So he came just halfway. She could not come to the full. She could not remain a wooden statue but she looked on both the sides, even her mother Indujan, who in private touches my feet, but in public <laughs> she remained just a wooden statue. So she looked at her mother and she looked at her brother and she had chosen the middle way. <laughs> Just she came halfway. To speak such people is almost worse than speaking to a wall. I am taking the initiative of greeting them and they are not even human enough to respond to the greeting. And particularly in the East such ugliness is unforgivable. And they have been insisting for the interview. 
I was reluctant, reluctant for the simple purpose that they will ask stupid questions, then they will distort what I say, But when I saw they have come and the whole staff of the Times of India Press, I agreed. But I agreed really for Sumer Jain. He is a young man. He has been to the ashram before, he has meditated, he wanted to become a sannyasin, but his father was absolutely against, so against that he wanted that if he becomes a sannyasin, he will disown him. Now they are one of the richest people of the country. He has not the guts to say to the father that it is perfectly okay, you can disown me. But he had a sympathetic heart and he was the only man who raised his hands now to talk to such people becomes impossible unless you forget them completely whether they exist or not and that's what I had to do. I did not look at them at all. <laughs> I just looked at my people and talked to my people. And I have made a condition to them that they cannot distort any statement. They have to publish my whole statement as I have given, and they don't have even the guts to publish their own questions and my answers. Because my answers expose the dirty politics and the dirty journalism that follows the politics. Bodhidharma speaks as if he is speaking to himself. 
then he can open his heart totally without any limitation he is absolutely unconcerned who is going to listen him who is going to read him perhaps this is the reason why he reaches to tremendously deep insights into human nature you will see statements that have never been made but bodhidharma has made them so clearly that they cannot be refuted either these sutras have been in existence for 1000 years at least but no buddhist scholar has commented on them the book was kept in the buddhist pagodas temples hidden it has been just discovered few years before by some western scholars and they could not believe that such a tremendously significant book buddhists have not been allowing the world to know what it contains i can understand the fear of the buddhists they have translated in english and in german and in other international languages thousands of books but bodhidharma has been neglected completely it is a strange world here to be sincere and truthful is the most dangerous thing just few days before here in pune the sankracharya of jyotirmath swami sarupanand declared in a press conference that bhagwan is the unparalleled dangerous man in the whole history of mankind <laughs> i don't go out of my house i am not a terrorist i am not interested in any power politics 
I don't have any nuclear weapons. On what grounds this man is saying that I am the unparalleled, dangerous man in the whole history of mankind? What danger is there? The danger is that I don't care about anybody when it comes to assert the truth. It is not that I am dangerous, it is the truth that is dangerous. Just console people with lies. Go on giving them hopes so they can manage dragging themselves towards their graves. Just go on giving them opium so they don't feel the pain, the agony, the stupidity of their lives. And that's what all the religions have been doing. And whenever somebody has said the truth, he immediately becomes a dangerous man. Otherwise Jesus was not a dangerous man. He was only thirty-three when he was crucified. A young man, uneducated, doing no harm to anybody, but stating the truth and the rabbis of Israel could not tolerate that man. He was disturbing all their fabrications of lies. They crucified that young man. Socrates has never harmed anybody, but his great crime was to say the truth. He was poisoned and killed. Bodhidharma was also poisoned. Although the people who poisoned him thought that he is killed, but he was not killed. He was made of a different kind of metal. He simply went into a coma, and in the night disappeared leaving one of his shoes in the tomb and the other shoe 
hanging with his staff after 3 years when people have completely believed that he is dead he was seen passing the boundaries of china and entering into the himalayas by a government high official he could not believe his eyes he has heard that he has been poisoned and killed he asked bodhidharma he said i was in coma and i waited for the night when the coma disappeared a little and i was able to get up i escaped from the tomb i have left one of my shoes there in the tomb as a proof that i have been there and under shoe i am taking hanging on my staff to prove that i am bodhidharma my identity card <laughs> the official immediately rushed to the mountain where he was poisoned and he asked the disciples they sold the tomb and the official said i would like it to be open because i have seen the man with his sandal hanging with his staff and he has told me that he has left the other sandal as a signature in the tomb i would like to open the tomb and see whether that man was really bodhidharma or somebody else was playing a trick on me the tomb was opened and only one shoe was there and nobody else what was the need to poison bodhidharma one cannot conceive how human beings have behaved with people who are making every effort to awaken you and you respond by killing them who is insane socrates is insane 
जीसस इज इन सेन मंसूर इज इन सेन सरमद इज इन सेन बोधिधर्मा इज इन सेन आर द पीपल हु हैव किल्ड देम here are few sutras for this morning of great importance for those who want to understand the truth and who are ready to drop all kinds of lies without the mind there is no buddha means that the buddha comes from the mind but he is not the mind the mind is the bondage of a buddha and as he goes beyond the mind enters into the state of no mind he becomes the buddha but he comes from the mind and you all have the mind so you are fulfilling at least half the journey already the other half is to get out of the mind and declare your buddhahood you need not shout it you need not even whisper it it will declare itself in your presence in your words in your silence in the depth of your eyes in the grace and beauty of your individuality in the fragrance that will surround you you will come like a cool breeze the word tathagata used for gautam buddha has two meanings one meaning i have explained to you it means the man who trusts existence and its suchness whatever happens good or bad misery or blissfulness he remains unperturbed he says it is the suchness of things there is no need to be disturbed by suffering and there is no need to be disturbed by blissfulness all these are natural phenomena you have to remain aloof that was the one meaning of tathagata 
there is another meaning also. And that other meaning is significant to understand these sutras. Tathagata means a man who comes like a breeze and goes like a breeze. Literally it means thus came, thus gone. He does not wait for your invitation. Suddenly he comes and he does not wait for you to prevent him. Suddenly he is gone. But he has left behind an experience of coolness and calmness and tranquility. That calmness, coolness, serenity, silence, they declare more loudly than anything else to the whole existence that a Buddha has arrived, that now all the priests are in danger that all the politicians are trembling inside. All those who are living on lies are scared to death. Truth has such power, it never harms anybody but it makes the whole fabrication of lies around the world tremble. A single man of truth is enough. I am reminded of a Jewish story. In the Old Testament it is said God became very angry. Jewish God is very angry God. He became angry against two cities Gomorrah and Sodom, because they were practicing perverted sexual things. And he was ready to destroy them. In the Old Testament he actually destroys them. It reminds one of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Total destruction. And the cities were almost exactly of the same size 
एज नागासाकी एन हिरोशिमा दे वर ग्रेट सिटीज इन दोज डेज विथ ऑलमोस्ट इक्वल पॉपुलेशन एज हिरोशिमा एंड नागासाकी एंड गॉड डिस्ट्रॉयड देम कंप्लीटली because they were going perverted but in judaism there is a small stream of authentic mystics that is the only beautiful thing that judaism has contributed to the world they are called hasid they are not accepted by the orthodox judaism they are condemned but they are the people of truth they cannot conceive a god who can get angry so they have written their own story they don't care what the old testament says their story is that one hasid mystic hearing that god is going to destroy sodom and gomorrah approached god and said before you destroy you have to answer few of my questions first if there are 200 people who are not perverted in those two cities who are good who are pure of soul who are sincere who are people of realization are you still going to destroy those cities and those good people god was taken abed he cannot say that he can destroy 200 self realized people he said i was not aware of it it is very kind of you to inform me i will not destroy those 200 people are going to save 200000 people dasi said the second question if there are not 200 people but only 20 are you going to destroy do you consider quantity more significant than quality and god was again defeated certainly quality is a higher value than quantity what does it matter whether they are 200 self realized people are 20 god said i accept your argument even if there are 20 people if you can prove 20 people 
those cities will be saved. Dasid laughed and said, said my last argument. If there are not twenty people, but only one self-realized man who lives six months in Sodom and six months in Gomorrah, are you going to destroy? Do you think still quantity means much? are the quality. God became very fed up with the man. He is a real Jew. He is bringing him down, haggling, and now he has brought him to one man from two hundred. He said, okay, but then you will have to present that one man. He said, I am that man. <laughs> Jews don't allow that beautiful story. They said it is fiction, but to me, their idea of God being angry and destroying Gomorrah and Sodom is a fiction. To me, the Hasid part seems to be more authentic. Just one man of truth is enough to save the world. But the world does not want to be saved. God need not kill that one man, the world kills that man. The people whom He was going to save are the people who destroy Him. Without the mind there is no Buddha. Means that the Buddha comes from the mind, but he is not the mind. It is just like a lotus flower. It comes from mud, but it is not mud. Can you think of two things so different as mud and a lotus flower? But the lotus flower comes from the mud and rises above the waters, and the lotus flower is such a transformation. But without the mud there will be no lotus flowers. Without lotus flowers mud can exist. This is something to be understood. The higher is very fragile.
the lower is very solid the lower is like a rock and the higher is like a rose flower the higher you move the more fragile you become these people socrates or jesus or bodh dharma could be poison these were the lotus flowers but the muddy minds became very angry seeing the lotus flowers coming out of them their anger is understandable the lotus flower is such a beauty there is no other flower in the world compared to the beauty of the lotus hence buddha has called his paradise a lotus paradise to make it the ultimate in beauty he has used the word lotus but this is the strangeness of the world that the mud can exist without any lotuses but no lotus can exist without the mud minds can exist in millions without there being a single buddha but a buddha cannot exist if all the minds are absent the minds function like the mud but he has to transcend the mud and the water and rise above to meet the sun to see the sun so remember the buddha comes from the mind but he is not the mind whoever wants to see a buddha sees the mind because buddha is invisible it is not a flower that blossoms for the outward eyes it is a flower that blossoms only for the inner eye unless your inner eye is open you will not recognize the buddha 
द नो माइंड इज नीडेड बिफोर वन कैन सी द बुद्धा ए ट्रेमेंडसली ब्यूटिफुल स्टोरी इज दैट वेन बुद्धा बिकेम एनलाइटेंड इज फर्स्ट थाट वॉज to go back to his kingdom his father must be old if he is not dead if he is he is still alive then he owes something to him he was his only son he has given him immense suffering in his old age he was going to be his support and he was going to be his successor and he escaped so the first thought was to reach to the kingdom and to impart his own ecstasy his own blissfulness to his father but he was not aware of the fact that the father will not be able to recognize him as a buddha his inner eye is not open he thinks only through the mind he does not know any approach from no mind so when he faced the old man the old man was really angry and you cannot complain against his anger that you deceived me in my old age where you have been for 12 years what have you been doing what is all this nonsense an emperor's son is carrying a begging bowl you are born to be one of the greatest emperors in the world perhaps as the astrologers has said when you were born you have the capacity to become a world conqueror and you have chosen this stupid life and buddha stood silently not saying a single word he wanted first let the man release his anger but the old man recognized the fact that half an hour has passed 
he has been shouting and he has been abusing and he has been condemning and his son is simply standing there with such silence absolutely unperturbed he looked closely enough buddha said this is a right gesture look closely i am not the man who had left you that man is dead long before Yes, I am in the same continuity, but it was the mud and the lotus. So don't take revenge with the lotus because you are angry against the mud. Just let me wash your tears because the old man was. full of tears and clean your eyes just cool down and just have another look i am not the same man who has left the palace a great transformation has happened i had gone from the palace as a mortal i am coming back to the palace as an immortal i had gone from the palace as an ordinary human being i am coming back to the palace as divine just have a little look the father looked at him certainly there has been great change for few moments there was utter silence the father simply went on looking at him and something transpired within the father and the son and the father said forgive me in my anger with my tears with my old eyes i could not recognize the transformation now my only desire is initiate me on the same path which transforms mud into a lotus you certainly have become a lotus I have never seen you so beautiful so graceful nothing has been said and the father is being initiated the moment you know 
you don't have to declare it. It declares itself. But only those who have a certain sensitivity, a certain music in their heart, a certain poetry in their being, will be able to recognize you. Those who are simply accountants, bankers, running after money, running after power, they will be absolutely blind to recognize a Buddha. Once you have seen the Buddha, you forget about the mind. Once you have seen the lotus flower, you forget all about the mud. If you don't forget about the mind, the mind will confuse you. It will, not, it will not allow you to recognize the great transmutation, the great transformation that has happened perhaps in your son, perhaps in your friend, perhaps in a stranger. You need a certain sympathetic attitude and an opening of the heart to allow the man to leave his imprint within you. And your recognition is going to be a seed of transformation within you. Then you cannot remain in the mind anymore. Then you cannot remain contented with your muddy world. Then you would like to become another lotus. You have heard the challenge and you have seen the reality that you contain the lotus, but you have been unaware of it. It has remained dormant. Everybody is a Buddha, but only in the seat, hidden in the mud. Recognizing a lotus flower is recognizing your own future, your own possibilities, your own grandeur.
mortality and buddhahood are like water and ice. There is not much difference between the mortals and the immortals. The difference is just like water and ice. To be afflicted by the three poisons is mortality. To be purified by the three religions is Buddhahood. The three poisons, Bodhidharma says, is anger, greed, delusion. With this, these three poisons, you remain a martyr. Once you are purified of these three poisons, you have become an immortal. You have attained to the eternity. Now there is no death for you. That which freezes into ice in winter melts into water in summer. There is no qualitative difference between water and ice or vapor. The difference is only of temperature. Every human being, the greatest criminal, even an Adolf Hitler, has the potential of being a Buddha. However, Unconscious you may be, however deep may be your sleep, you can be awakened. Awakening is not a difference of quality. It is a difference only of degrees. The asleep man is less awake and the awake man is less asleep. Remember the difference between people is only of degrees. And that is not much of a difference. A slight understanding and the difference can be dissolved. Get rid of mortality and there is no more Buddhahood. This is 
how bodhi dharma is special he says get rid of mortality and there is no more buddhahood it is only in the eyes of the martyrs that buddhas appear so high when their mortality is finished their own buddhahood is attained and the essential quality of awareness is that it is there but you are not aware of it you cannot be aware of awareness you cannot be conscious of consciousness you cannot be in knower when you really know then you are one with it the buddhahood happens only to you because you are a martyr and buddha looks so far away you are only in the mud just a seed and the lotus looks so far away so different you cannot conceive any connection between you and the lotus but when you become lotus yourself all differences disappear and the lotus is not aware of its beauty is not aware of its fragrance it is simply his nature this kind of statements except bodhidharma nobody else has been able to make for the simple reason because they are so strange they look so illogical irrational but existence is illogical it is irrational if you are only thinking in the mind then it is one thing but if you are experiencing the process of mud transforming into a lotus flower you will understand bodhi dharma without any difficulty you will rejoice in his strange statements martyrs again a very strange statement
mortals liberate buddhas and buddhas liberate mortals i can understand why buddhists have been hiding these sutras for 1000 years because the very idea is outrageous that mortals liberate buddhas and buddhas liberate mortals but he is right every buddha comes from the mortals and seeing the agony the suffering the misery the continuous meaninglessness of mortals is the cause of his liberation if there was no mortals there will be no buddhas when i had come back from the university naturally my parents were anxious that i should get married they were afraid that i was not the sort and my father was very alert that once i say no to something then there is no way to make it yes so he tried from his friends that you just find out his mind is it possible that he will say yes only then i will ask once he has said no to me it is finished so his friends started asking me one of his friend was the best physician of that area he called me to have a dinner with him and by the way he mentioned what do you think about marriage <laughs> i said uncle i am unmarried 
I don't have any experience. You have been married thrice. You have three times more experience than anybody else. You tell me, what do you think? He looked in a very miserable way. He said, my experience? I'm a fool. I should have starved when my first wife died. But fools are fools. I married again, thinking that every woman is not going to be the same. But within few days the woman was different, but the problems were the same. And God has been so kind to me, even the second wife died. But my stupidity is such, I am married again. And now I am suffering. And you are asking me about, what do you think about marriage? I said, that's enough. Just tell my father your experience. You have liberated me from marriage. He said, what do you mean by it? I have done just the wrong thing what your father has asked me. I was going to convince you. I said, you have convinced. Just tell my father the whole thing that happened. I will get married only if you say yes. He said, I cannot. No, I will not drag you into the same hell in which I have lived. I cannot say. Then I said, tell to my father, that you have convinced me that I should not get married. He said, you have put me in such a trouble. Your father is depending on me. He reported to my father. My father said, you should have been a little more cautious Instead of convincing him for marriage, you have spoiled the whole thing. He said, what can I do? 
he managed in such a way that I forget completely what is the purpose of the dinner. Martyrs liberate Buddhas. Just look around martyrs and you cannot resist to be a Buddha. Sooner the better. And Buddhas liberate martyrs. That is just repaying the debt. When they become Buddhas, they start hammering the martyrs. That's what I have been doing my whole life. First martyrs liberated me. Now I am trying to liberate martyrs. The statement is very strange and perhaps Buddhist scholars could not find how to explain it. So they thought it better to keep it in oblivion, not to bring it out, otherwise It is perfectly okay that Buddhas liberate martyrs, but martyrs liberating Buddhas? The learned, the scholarly cannot understand it. This is what is meant by impartiality. Martyrs liberating Buddhas, Buddhas liberating martyrs, this is called impartiality. Now everything is balanced. Nobody owes to anybody else. Neither the Buddhas are obliging you, nor you are obliging Buddhas. You have come to a state, both have paid their debts to each other. Martyrs liberate Buddhas because affliction creates awareness. Seeing the martyrs and their afflictions, if you are intelligent enough, you will not follow their path. So many are following on the path and everybody is falling in a ditch.
and everybody is suffering. When my father failed with the physician, he approached his another friend, he thought that should be the last resort because he was a Supreme Court advocate and was known as that he has never lost any case. So my father told him that if you can win this case, <laughs> then we will accept that you are really a great advocate of the Supreme Court. He said, this is nothing. Just by my left hand I can do it. I will be coming tomorrow to your home. My father told him, come prepare. He said, don't be worried. I know your son. And do you think he can defeat me in arguments? My father said, I don't think he can defeat you in arguments, but he has strange ways. <laughs> the physician who is known to be the wisest man in the area, he managed, manipulated him. Now he is in his favor. <laughs> the advocate was very egoist and he has reasons to be egoist. He said, you don't be worried. But my father said, still you do the homework. <laughs> don't come unprepared. I warn you. You may lose the case. My boy is strange. The advocate said, you calm down, you don't be worried. Tomorrow I will settle everything. So tomorrow he came. I welcomed him and I asked him that I know for what you have come. And I think my father must have told you, be prepared, do the homework. He looked at me. He said, how do you know? I said, That's what he has told to the physician, so I know he must have told the same things to you. And you are his last resort. 
So if you are defeated, then the whole question of marriage is finished. But he said, who said I am going to be defeated? I said, I am not saying that. Just I want to make it clear that if I get defeated, I will be married. But if you get defeated, are you ready to divorce your wife? He said, My God, your father was right. I have never thought about that it is a question, certainly you are right. I should also put something on stake. But listen, I have children and you know my wife. She even beats me. I cannot even utter the word divorce before her. So I said, you have not come with preparedness and I don't need any judge. I trust you. Although you will be a party in argument, you will be also the judge. He said, I don't want to argue at all. I said, what you are going to answer to my father? He said, that is what I am thinking. <laughs> the argument never started. And I used to go to his house every day, knocking on the door, and he will simply say, I don't want to quarrel with you. I am already tortured too much. And one day his wife came out and he said, Why he is so afraid of you? I said, Because of you. He started hiding in the bathroom, he will not get out. And his wife said, this is strange, he is never afraid of anybody. He hides, he says to me that he is not in the home. What is the matter? What is cooking? I said, nothing is cooking. He is afraid of being defeated. And you are my great support. 
She said, I don't understand what is going on. What is the problem in what I am the support? I said, you ask him. <laughs> he is thinking to divorce you. <laughs> and he immediately came out of the bathroom. <laughs> he said, don't lie. I am never going to divorce her. I love her. I will love her my whole life. I said, it is up to you. But what about the argument? He said, finished, I don't want to see you at all. You have made me so shaky that even in the court, I feel afraid the moment I remember you. Don't disturb my family life. I said, you were going to disturb my whole life. Martyrs liberate Buddhas because affliction creates awareness. And Buddhas liberate martyrs because awareness negates affliction. All the Buddhas come from the martyrs. Just they are more watchful than you are. They look all around. The whole scene is tragic, pathetic. That creates great awareness in them. And when they have come to the highest peak of their awareness, they make every effort to help you to be aware so that you can also get out of these afflictions. It is not only that the man is in misery, the woman is in more misery. It seems there is a strange conspiracy going on that everybody is creating misery for everybody else. Many times I have been asked why I have not married. I said, because of the married people. I have known so many. And they warned me. And now my whole work is somehow to get you out of your trap, to make you more alert, more aware, whether you are a husband or a wife, 
with your awareness your misery will disappear just as light dispels darkness awareness dispels misery there can't help but be affliction because people are unconscious and there can't help but be awareness once in a while somebody is going to be alert enough to see all around and the person who becomes aware feels it to share with people who are unaware if not for affliction there would be nothing to create awareness and if not for awareness there would be nothing to negate affliction when you are deluded buddhas liberate martyrs when you are aware martyrs liberate buddhas buddhas don't become buddhas on their own this is the greatness of bodhidharma he can say exactly however hard it hits he is saying buddhas don't become buddhas on their own without this whole world of misery around them they would never become buddhas they should be grateful to all these people who are miserable because these are the people who impelled them not to get trapped as they are trapped buddhas regard delusion as their father and greed as their mother only a bodhidharma can say such things seeing the greed of the people and the anguish and the anxiety that greed creates seeing delusions of the people everybody is thinking of himself not exactly what he is everybody is multiplying
his personality his ego his knowledge he is pretending things that he knows nothing of one of my professors i found has never read anything after he left university 30 years before everything that he said was out of date psychology was his subject and psychology is a very fast growing subject in 30 years everything that was right has gone down the drain but he was quoting still books which he has read in his post graduation courses and he had a difficulty with me because i was reading the latest and i will quote from the latest researches and he was a poor soul he could not even say that forgive me i am not aware of these researches to keep his ego he will say yes i have seen those papers but if he has seen those papers or those books which have come just now then he should not be teaching outdated theories about human mind and consciousness i reported to the vice chancellor i said it should be made compulsory for every professor at least to spend 2 hours in the library every day he said in no university anything like that is in existence and all the professors will protest against it and why you are saying that i said all your professors were taught 
30 years, 20 years before. And all that they know is no more relevant. And I have been checking in the library who are the professors who take the books from the library. And this particular professor I am mentioning has never taken a single book from the library. He has never come to the library. And the library of the university was very rich, very up-to-date. Because the man who has founded the university was a man of tremendous learning and he loved books like anything else. So I told him, call this professor in front of me and I will show you why I am demanding. And if you don't listen to me, then I am going to the students' union and talk to all the students that boycott all those professors who don't go to the library at least for two hours. He knew me that I can manage. So he said, don't go that far. Bring that professor. I said, I will not bring. You call him. I am sitting here. He called the professor. The professor came in. And I just invented two fictitious names of psychologists and two fictitious names of books which has never been written and will never be written. <laughs> and I asked the professor, have you read these books? He said, my God, how you have found? They are on my desk in my room. I have been reading them. They are the latest contribution." And I told to the Vice-Chancellor that these both names are fictitious, these both books are fictitious, they don't exist. Now tell this man to bring those two books in your office. They are lying on his table. Then he became afraid. From where he is going to get those two books? which are fictitious and he has accepted that they are lying on his table, he is reading them and they are great. I said, this is the situation. And these are the people who are teaching.
and their students will become professors tomorrow and they will continue 50 year old rotten experiments which have failed and have been replaced by new ideologies he said i concede to you and he made it a compulsory law that every professor has to go to the library study the latest journals books magazines and be up to date professors were angry they were all angry at me but i said that anger is not going to help i am checking every day in the library <laughs> who is coming and who is not coming those who are not coming i will bring a procession of protest of all the students to their department then don't tell me that you are creating chaos you are the cause of it the librarian was surprised all the professors were coming reading taking books home but the day i left the university i was informed the law was removed after 7 or 8 years i had gone to that university to deliver a lecture i went to the library the same librarian was still there and the library was empty there was nobody i asked him what happened those professors come are no more he said the day you left the university the law was removed it was just out of your fear that you may create trouble now nobody comes even the vice chancellor has started coming to the library people go on creating delusions magnifying them exaggerating them bodhi dharma said greed is the father of the buddhas and delusion is the mother delusion and greed are different names of mortality when you are deluded 
you are on this soul. When you are aware, you are on the other soul. These are only symbolic ways of saying, you are here, deluded, you are in misery, aware, you are in blissfulness. But once you know your mind is empty and you see no appearances, you are beyond delusion and awareness. Each statement is difficult for scholars to explain. Only a Buddha can explain these statements. He is saying, when you are in the know that your mind is empty. In other words, when you encounter your no mind and you see no appearances, you are beyond delusion and awareness. I have never come across any statement that says that you are beyond awareness, but he is absolutely rational, logical and existentially true. Because when you don't have the disease, I don't think you will go on carrying the medicine with you. The moment you are healthier, your disease is gone, you donate your medicine that has remained to the Lions Club. <laughs> what you are going to do with it? Lions need it. to show to the world that they are great charitable institutions. It was useless for you, you were going to throw it. Why not enjoy donating it to the Lions Club? A good game. Something useless you donate to the Lions Club. And Lions Club gives it to the poor people and without spending anything Lions Club becomes a charitable institution. The same is the situation with misery and awareness. The moment there is no delusion what is the need of awareness? 
That does not mean you fall asleep. That simply means awareness becomes simply your very nature. You are no more aware of it. And once you are beyond delusion and awareness, the other soul does not exist. What is the need of the other soul? The other soul was only a symbolic concept. This soul is the world, the other soul is the paradise. When the world and the attachment with the world is gone, who cares about paradise? You are already in it, wherever you are. A Sufi saying is, wherever the enlightened person is, there is paradise. The paradise is something within your being. The Tathagata is not on this shore, the other shore, and he is not in mid-stream. These are the only possibilities, either on this shore or on the other shore, or in the mid-stream. Tathagata is nowhere. One who has understood himself can be said either everywhere or nowhere. Both are equivalent. But at the last sutra he reminds again remembers again his antagonism with the arhatas and mortals are on this soul on the other soul Arhatas and the mortals the arhatas are in midstream going to the other source which does not exist, they are still carrying a counter-delusion and the mortals are on this soul. 
on the other shore is Buddhahood. But the moment you are on the other shore, the other soul disappears. You are simply a light unto yourself. But about arhatas he cannot forget. He puts them in the midstream, neither on this soul, not on the, that soul. Arhatas also are on the other shore as bodhisattvas, as buddhas. And the moment they reach the other shore, both the souls disappear simultaneously. Suddenly they are awake and they find themselves part of the whole. a great shower of blessings coming over them. If Bodhidharma could have forgotten the antagonism with arhatas. And used, instead of mind, no mind, his sutras would have been perfect, without any flaw. But even with these two flaws, they are great. And anybody who understands can make you aware about these two flaws. Don't carry any antagonism. And use as far as possible closest word to reality. Mind is not the closest word to meditation. No mind is. Arhatas may have angered him because they become enlightened and they never care about anybody. They don't even speak. It is very difficult to get anything out of the arhatas. But my own feeling is everybody has to be his own self, his own individuality his own uniqueness. Arhatas have their own uniqueness. 
after becoming enlightened, they become utterly silent. This is the antagonism of Bodhidharma, that they should be more compassionate, they should help others to become enlightened. And if you see the arguments from both the sides, you will see that both are right in their own way. Arhatas say it is interference into somebody's life. If he wants to remain unenlightened, it is his right. Arhatas say this is our compassion, that we don't interfere into anybody's life. Bodhisattvas say, this is our compassion, that we try every effort to make others enlightened. This is our compassion. I think both have beautiful arguments, and there is nothing wrong in either of the arguments. Existence is multidimensional, it has so many aspects. A man of ultimate understanding will not see any contradiction anywhere. In his understanding and clarity, all contradictions become complemented to each other. Okay, Manisha. Yes, Bhagwan.